So, with all that being said, we're in the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 35 through to 17, verse 9. Let me read the text for us so that we can just get a sense of the whole of it before we walk through it piece by piece. It says this, When it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let they themselves come and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were very afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and they apologized to them and took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many great, uh, a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, but the Jews were jealous And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar. They attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar and saying that there is another king, Jesus. When I was a freshman or a sophomore in high school, this show started airing on Fox that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. It was called 24. Uh, and 24 was, uh, followed the exploits of international espionage superstar Jack Bauer as he did battle with the secret government organizations and all those sort of things. Uh, but with a traditional TV show, there is a narrative arc that is traced throughout the season. And, and the way that the narrative arc works is it tends to follow a handful of people and maybe a protagonist and an antagonist, and it follows them through a period of time. It could be days, it could be weeks, it could be months. But from the beginning of the season to the end, normally a significant amount of time has passed. The gimmick with 24 is that each of the 24 episodes in a season was one hour in Jack Bauer's single day of his life. So in theory, uh, if you're the sort of person who could binge watch all the Lord of the Rings extended editions... You, you might also be the sort of person who would binge watch 24 and you would start at 6 a.m. and you would watch a whole season of 24 and then by 6 a.m. the next day you have spent a day in the life of Jack Bauer, secret agent superstar. Uh, just like you could do the same with Lord of the Rings and eventually walk out thinking that you are Aragorn, uh, heir, to, heir to the throne and all the good stuff that I wish my life was. So... So this was sort of the gimmick of 24, the way that they composed the narrative arc. And I say this because you come to Scripture from time to time, and you notice that there are texts of Scripture that function like the first convention in uh, sort of a television program. So, for example, the Gospels. Uh, The Gospels condense a very long period of time, which is the 30-something years of Jesus' life, into books that you could read aloud in about an hour or two. There is a lot of in-between in Jesus' life that the Gospels sort of just shrink down to a sentence or two, uh, and they give you the greatest hits of Jesus, the 20th century master's record of Jesus' life. Because the reality is that Jesus spent a significant amount of his life walking from one place to another, and it would be an awfully uninteresting Gospel if it said, Day 31 of the trek to Judah. 
Jesus walked three miles, day 32, and on and on and on. Uh, But last week, we began sort of this two-week stint in the book of Acts, specifically Acts chapter 16. And in Acts 16, we see Paul and Silas and his associates go to the city of Philippi, the one which Paul will later write a letter to. And when Paul enters Philippi, he encounters a woman named Lydia who is wealthy. Uh, She is a seller of purple linen and fine goods. And we're told she's a God-fearer, which in this day and age essentially meant a non-Jewish person who worships the God of Israel. And so when Paul goes to Lydia, he proclaims the gospel to her and her household. They repent and they believe. And then Paul goes on his way and continues to preach throughout Philippi. But at some point, we're told that a slave girl begins to follow Paul around. And we're told that she has what's called a spirit of divination. Uh, The Greek here is strange. It says the spirit of the python. Uh, she is inhabited by. And, and somehow the spirit is giving her the ability to discern things that the average person wouldn't discern. She has some sort of a prophetic thing that's being empowered by this evil spirit. And so Paul eventually gets fed up with being followed around by Reagan from the exorcist and turns to this girl and says to the demon, leave in Jesus' name. And he casts the demon out of the girl. And this sets in motion the one season of 24 hours in the apostle Paul's life. Because the people who own this girl have been using this gift, if you will, as a way of making money. They've ultimately been exploiting her spiritual destruction for their financial benefit. And so they see that their wandering prophetess that they have been using to make money off of can no longer do the things that bring them money. And so they drag Paul and Silas before the leaders in Philippi. And in the, leader, the magistrates and the leaders in Philippi really have no interest in justice And so they allow the mob to assault Paul and Silas. They're beaten, they're bloodied, they're broken. They've likely got teeth missing. They have black eyes. They may or may not have broken bones. The leaders in the magistrate in Philippi eventually strip them naked and parade them through the streets into the prison. And we're about 12 hours into Paul's 24-hour day from hell. And in the prison, we're told around midnight that Paul and Silas are singing hymns and praying to the Lord Together, And it's at this point that the foundations of the prison shake. The doors are thrown open. The chains around the wrists of Paul and Silas and all those who are with them are thrown off. And the jailer wakes up to the earthquake and the doors open and says, oh no, I'm in trouble. And he takes out his sword to kill himself. And it's at this point that Paul says, don't, don't do anything rash. We're all still here. And it's at this point that everything that the jailer had heard about Paul... Uh, And the reason that Paul and Silas are in prison, it's at this point that all of those things sort of fade to the background. He's probably heard that Paul is a troublemaker, that he's stirring up division, that he's causing problems in the city. But at this point, he says, this man has demonstrated an integrity, the likes of which I have not seen. And I am interested now in hearing what you have to say. He says, what must I do to be saved? I hear that you preach the way of salvation. That's what the slave girl said as she followed you around. And so Paul and Silas explained to him the gospel The jailer leads them out to his home where the whole of the house repents and believes. The jailer binds their wounds. He feeds them. And then he brings them back and he locks them back up in the prison because he's still got to do his job ultimately. And at this point, we are maybe 20 hours into Paul's 24-hour day. And we come to our text, which is Acts 16, verse 35. It says, when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. 
The jailer, this is the man who has just been saved, reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now. Go in peace. Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and now they want to let us out secretly. No, let them come take us out themselves. So when I did my undergrad at USF, majored in religion, that was a trip. Uh, but it was a fascinating degree. And if you're in college right now, you know this. There is this terribly exploitative system in the university setting called gen ed requirements, where you have to take classes you don't care about that ultimately don't seem to have any bearing on your degree. And I'm not bitter about it in the slightest. Um, But when I registered at USF, one of the gen eds that they required me to take my freshman semester was intro to criminology or criminal justice. So some of you are going into that degree, and you've likely taken some of those classes. What this has to do with religion, I don't know. I guess it's so we can prosecute people who steal tithe money or something like that. Um, But but I I went into the class thinking, this is dumb. This is stupid. Get me to World Religions 101. Get me to major texts. I have no interest in this. But but it turned out to be this fascinating class that I actually really enjoyed. Uh, And one of the things that was discussed in this class was the different theories as to why we punish crime. Uh, and what the desired outcome in the punishment of crime actually is. And so I don't know if you've considered this, but there's actually a couple different takes on why it is that we punish criminals and what we hope to do when we put them in prison. And so one of these theories is called the, uh, well, one of these theories would say that putting people in jail is protective, right? These people have done something to wrong society in some way or another. They are a danger to other people, so we are going to take them out of other people, set them aside so that everybody else is safe. And there are other people who say, well, maybe there's a protective element to it, but maybe there's also a correctional element to it. Right? We call prison correctional facilities, or at least sometimes we do. And so they say, well, maybe we're taking them out of society so that they don't hurt anybody, but we're also trying to correct and reform their thinking and then put them back in as happy, productive, smiling members of society. So maybe it's protective, but maybe it's also correctional. And then there are others who say it's punitive. You have inflicted this much damage on people, therefore you will pay this much for it. Uh, This is why we have phrases like the punishment must fit the crime. And then there are others still who say that uh, punishment for crime is meant to be a deterrent. And when we say deterrent, we essentially mean two things. One, that whatever the punishment for the crime is, that punishment is such that the person who did it never wants to do it again. And two... The person or people in society who are going, you know, Steve's Ponzi scheme sounds like a great idea. They say, actually, never mind. I saw what happened to Steve. I'm not going to try it. So in the ancient world, this played itself out with people having their hands removed when they were caught for thievery. When somebody stole something, they got one of their hands cut off. And so uh, consider the two purposes in deterrent punishment. The thief says, I've only got one left. The Lord only saw fit to give me two of them. I'd like to keep this one. I think I'm not going to steal that apple next time. But the person looking at the thief says, I like both of these. I want to keep both of these. My hands are nice. And I'm not going to do what Steve did because I don't want to end up like Steve ended up. Now, I say this not to walk you through complex theory, and I'm sure that some of you are criminology and criminal justice majors, and you can correct all of my misunderstandings after the service. The reason I say this, though, is because it seems that in this text, there is something at work in the minds of the Philippian government. They are trying to deter the Christian church in what they do to Paul and Silas. 
It seems as though their thinking here is, if we persecute the primary leaders of this movement, if we take Paul and Silas and we beat them hard enough and we throw them in prison and we scare them badly enough, maybe they will come crawling out and say, you know, the gospel sounded like a great idea until this happened and I'm just going to kind of go back to what I was doing before. The desire is that this would be a a deterrent, not just for Paul and Silas, but for all the people within the community who have come to know Christ, for Lydia and her household, for the Philippian jailer, for the slave girl and those she knows who have come to experience the power of the gospel. The, The hope here is that they see what happens to Paul and Silas and they say, it sounded like a great idea until I saw what happened to them and I'm gonna go back to what I was doing before. But what is astounding here is that when they open the prison cells and they unshackle Paul and Silas for the second time in this 24-hour day, Paul and Silas do not come crawling out of the prison and kiss the feet of their liberators. Paul sits there and he says, no, I'm not leaving. We need to talk. Paul is entirely undeterred by this whole experience. And this is what is astounding about Paul and his ministry. It's one of the reasons he's the greatest ministry. Uh, greatest missionary uh, that we have ever seen is because you can't stop him. You're going to beat me and throw me in prison? I'll convert your prisoner. You're going to keep me in prison? I'll convert all the prisoners. You're going to let me go? That's fine. I'm not going to stop. You're going to kill me? That's cool. I'll get to hang out with Jesus, and that's kind of what I want anyways. And on and on and on it goes. He's undeterrable. And as we read through this text in the beginning, Paul leaves this prison and then goes to three other cities and just keeps doing the same thing. The one that I can't pronounce that starts with an A and ends with an S. Apollonia and then Thessalonica. He just keeps going. He is undeterrable. And the reason that I bring this up is because I consider in my own life how quickly and how easily and how utterly deterred I become when the most minuscule thing happens. The conversation with a friend about the gospel doesn't go well. They ask questions I can't answer, which still happens to me even in seminary, in case you were wondering. The, the experience of suffering, the difficult life season that I walk through deters my confidence in God's goodness for years. I'm so easily deterred. But man, I pray that we as the college and career ministry are comprised of people who are undeterred in the face of opposition to the gospel, but we take a page from the saints who have run the race before us and we run it with perseverance and undeterredness and we press on and ever onward, recognizing that in this world we will have trouble, but Christ has overcome the world all the same, no matter what your circumstances are. That we would be a people who are undeterred. Paul's actual response, other than not getting up, is interesting to me as well. He says in verse 37, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us in prison. And now do they throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. Now last week as we walked through the preceding text that this immediately follows, one of the things that I mentioned is that when you look at the trial that Paul and Silas have, it's not really a trial at all. It is essentially a mob beating the living snot out of them and then them getting stripped naked and thrown in prison. They don't get the chance to answer the accusations. They they don't get the right to an attorney or even the right to remain silent. And you may have heard that and said, well, it seems like that's kind of the way things used to go, but we are much more progressed in our understandings of justice and we're so much further along than these primitive ancient peoples. 
C.S. Lewis has this phrase that I think very often applies to our day and age. He calls us chronological snobs. Because we look at people who live before us and we think that just because we've done some tremendous things technologically and scientifically, we just assume that they're completely stupid and have no concept of how the world works. When in reality, they probably have a better understanding of how life works because they spent it not looking at their iPhone or Instagramming pictures of the things that they're doing. They just did it. So, so you hear this and you may say, well, that's just how ancient justice worked. But it's actually not. And we know this because history has preserved the decrees of Caesar. And one of the things that Caesar said was that if a Roman citizen is brought before a local government like the Philippian magistrates, they are not allowed to be beaten or flogged or whipped or thrown in prison unless they receive a Roman trial. And if things start getting out of hand, all they have to do is say, I am a Roman citizen, and everything has to stop, and they have to be put in front of a Roman court. I don't know if anybody ever saw The Hunchback of Notre Dame, but it's kind of like Quasimodo yelling, Sanctuary! Sanctuary! It is the ancient equivalent of that. The reality is that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. The Philippian government has broken the law of the land. Now, Paul and Silas may well have said, I'm a Roman citizen, but it's hard to hear what somebody's saying when you're punching them in the face and hitting them with sticks. And so things are quiet now in the jail cell of Philippi, and Paul says it again. I'm a Roman citizen, and I have rights. And Paul points to the systems of power and the government and the rulers and the authorities of his world, and he calls them to repentance. I realize that that we're all roughly the same age here. And one of the things that I realize in, in talking with my friends and even in my own heart, one of the things that I see just within us as millennials and in this generation, I even, I hate that term millennials. I, I hate myself for just using it right now. But one of the things I see is that there is a sense, or at least there was this sense of political apathy. We look at the systems of the world and we say, it's too broken, we can't fix it, it's never going to get any better, so let's just step back and let Jesus fix it when he returns. I give up. It's too hard. And I'm going to be honest, there are times where I feel that deeply. I want to be equally honest when I say that I look at Paul's reaction in this prison and I am convicted of my apathy. Because Paul sits in this jail cell and calls his rulers and his authorities and the government that he sits under as a Roman citizen, he calls them to repent and wield the power of the sword as God intended for it to be used. He calls for justice. And you may be like me in that you say, it's too broken It's too wicked. Why try? We can't change it. And I think that Paul says back to us, we try because the people of God must be marked by their love for justice at all times, not just when they are the moral majority, but especially when they are the prophetic minority. When we see black brothers and sisters being oppressed and marginalized, the people of God cry out for justice. When we see the poor ignored in our community, the people of God cry out for justice. When we see laws that are cruel and wicked passed, the people of God cry out for justice. Why? Because we can win in a court of law? No, because the God whose name we bear is just, and his people who serve him must be marked by the justice of the God whom they love. Especially, especially when the whole world has set her face against it. So Paul sits in this prison, and he says to the Philippian system of power, 
repents. And he stages the first sit-in in human history and says, I'm not leaving until I get an apology. He's like the mom with the uh, John and Kate plus eight haircut that says, I want to speak to your manager. And astoundingly, it's reported to the police and the magistrates come in and apologize. And when was the last time you saw a politician actually apologize? I don't know. Apparently, Philippi is not so bad. So they come in and they apologize. And they took them out and they asked them to leave the city. They went out of the prison. They visited Lydia. When they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and they departed. And they traveled through the A-word city in Apollonia. And they come to Thessalonica. There's a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in. And as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasons with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now, we know just from the rest of the New Testament about Paul's burden for the Jewish people, but we also know from Acts that this is what he does. He goes to a new city that hasn't been evangelized, and he looks for the nearest synagogue. There's not one in Philippi, so he goes down by the river wherever he can find somebody. But in Thessalonica, there is a synagogue. And I think there's, there's two reasons why Paul has this approach to ministry. The first is that the Jewish people received the Old Covenant, and they were the ones that received the Old Testament. And they're the ones that have been waiting on the Messiah the longest, and so I think it's only fair that they hear first. But the second reason I think is really important and really applicable to you and I. Because the reality is that the Jewish people in these synagogues are not just sort of these vague strangers in the distance in Paul's life. They are his people. They're his brothers and sisters by blood. He knows their fears. He knows their anxieties. He knows their concerns. He knows their needs. And he knows how the gospel speaks to them because the gospel has spoken to it in his own life. And so Paul goes to his people. And his burden for his people. I listen to far too many sermons during my week. I probably listen to like 15 or 20 just because I don't have anything better to do with my time. It's checkers, play with my cat, or listen to sermons. And one of the things that I notice that that gets said again and again and again from the pulpits in, in churches across the country is, are you being evangelistic by inviting your friends to church? Now, This is not me knocking that. I'm encouraging you, invite people to the new night. They get free popsicles. I'm not saying it's bad by any means. But if I can be perfectly honest with you, as a 26-year-old man who has a bunch of tattoos and an affinity for slasher movies, chainsaw-wielding maniac movies, and death metal bands, it is going to be really, really hard for me to take the gospel and contextualize it to the person that's working in the cubicle next to you. It's going to be really hard for me to take the gospel and contextualize it to the Fortune 500 CEO. It's going to be really hard for me to take the gospel and contextualize it to the person who you work your dead-end job with or the person that you grew up with in, at the end of your cul-de-sac or the person in your life who, who has any other number of life experiences that I am just entirely unfamiliar with. It's hard for me to do that. But you know who knows what those people need? You do. Because they are your people. And you know how the gospel speaks to the needs and desires and the longing of their heart. And I am right 
in my comfort zone when, like this Friday, I sat with a friend out front of a tattoo shop after a death metal show and we talked about Jesus for 45 minutes. That is my element. But if you put me in a suit and tie in a high-rise in downtown Tampa, no idea what I'm doing. But those of you who are there and find yourselves there, oh, those are your people. Make no mistake, when we gather together on Sunday night or in whatever church you belong to on the Lord's Day, the primary purpose is not to absolve you of your evangelistic duty. It is not to absolve you of this great commission. It is to recapitulate the great commission. We are gathered. We learn about the Lord from the Lord through the word that God has inspired as the disciples did the same through the word made flesh. And then we are sent out into the world and commissioned anew to go to our people and carry the gospel. Just as Paul went to his people and carried the gospel. So I'm not, I'm not saying don't bring your friends. Please do. That would be great but not at the expense of you going to your people, the people you work with, the people you know, the people whose needs you share, and carrying the gospel forward to them, as Paul did with his people in the synagogues. He says to them, the Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And we're told that some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks And not a few of the leading women, but the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. There's a phrase that gets used in our day and age pretty frequently. And I think it bears itself out in our day-to-day lives. We say things like, familiarity breeds contempt. And if you've ever been on a long road trip with somebody, you know how true that is. Because about five hours into that road trip, your best friend, who you're about to have this really significant bonding experience with, becomes your mortal foe. And you are trapped in a steel box from hell as you journey and hurtle towards oblivion. This is the moment of darkness in the middle of my sermon where I say something that I regret and wish we could blot out of the podcast. Um, But you know it. The the more that you are around somebody, the harder it is to be with them. Or perhaps you've moved in with your best friend from your high school years, and you move in together in the beginnings of college, and I will tell you what, by December, they are not your best friend anymore. They're not even your friend anymore. You don't even know them anymore because you avoid them at all costs. Because the longer we are around something or someone, uh, the more we see the faults and the flaws and the things that are off-putting about them or this thing. But I would also argue that familiarity doesn't just breed contempt, it breeds complacency. That we see the same thing, and no matter how beautiful it is, day in and day out, and year in and year out, it grows dull to us, not because it has grown dull in and of itself, but because it is commonplace, we fail to see the exceeding value of it. And I say all this because there is a danger in church life, which is that week in and week out, you would come here and you would sing the praises of the Lord, and you would come to the table of the Lord, and you would hear the word of God, and it would become mundane to you. It would become boring to you. It would become insignificant to you. It would become a small thing. But I just want you to recognize and understand and be reaffirmed in this reality that nothing that we do on a Sunday night or a Sunday morning is insignificant. It is not mundane. It is utterly glorious. There is a profound thing taking place right now 
where people from every tribe and tongue and nation and nationality and socioeconomic background and life experience and political affiliation are gathered together now under the name of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. That is glorious. That is not boring. It is not mundane. It is not a box to be checked off on your weekly schedule. It is unbelievable. It turns the world itself upside down. When you come to the table of the Lord week in and week out and your brothers and sisters serve you and we partake of the Lord's Supper together, not because we deserve to dine with God, but because of the alien righteousness of Christ imputed to us, that is glorious. When we end our prayers in the name of the Son of God and approach the triune God of the universe, not as slaves, but as sons and daughters and cry out, Abba, Father, that is earth-shattering. It is not mundane, it is not boring, it is not a box to be checked, and may we never forget the earth-shattering reality of what we do because the Jewish leaders who are opposed to the gospel see it. These men are turning the world upside down. This is turning the world on its head. There is a video that you can look up online of a man who was a serial murderer, and I think that there was an element of um, sexual abuse that went with his crimes. And there's a video of him after the sentencing. I, I think he was sentenced to death or life in prison. Um, and one by one, the family of the victims are able to speak to him. Uh, and so the video is about five minutes long, and one by one, it's things like, I, I do not wish uh, that you would even repent. I want you to die a low, a slow, long, cruel death. I want you to suffer in agony. I hope that you are tormented in prison. And one after another after another uh, just launches this barrage of ill will and hatred and bitterness towards this man who has done an incredibly wicked and evil thing. But then a man stands up, and this man is a Christian. And he says to the murderer, the man who killed and violated his daughter, he says, there are people in this room who hate you, but I am not one of them because my Lord has called me to forgive you. So know that you are forgiven. If that doesn't turn the world upside down on its head, I do not know what does. That is turning things in the complete opposite direction of what we experience in our day-to-day life. Russell Moore from the Southern Baptist Convention in his book Onward, which you should absolutely read as we run into election season, says this, The kingdom of God turns the Darwinist social narrative of survival of the fittest upside down. When the church honors and cares for the vulnerable among us, we are not just showing charity. We are simply recognizing the way that the world really works in the long run. The child with Down syndrome on the fifth row from the back of your church, is not a ministry project. He is a future co-heir with Christ. The immigrant woman who scrubs toilets every day on her hands and knees and can barely speak enough English to sing along with your praise choruses, she is not a problem to be solved. She is a future queen of the cosmos, a joint co-heir with the Son of God and a fellow inheritor of the kingdom of God. It is turning the world upside down, and may you and I never grow numb to that earth-shattering reality. Because the Jewish leaders see it. These men are turning the world upside down, and they've come here to do the same thing. They levy one more criticism. Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king named Jesus. 
I mentioned that, that there's an error that we can fall into where we're just dispassionate and apathetic towards social engagement. And that's something we need to repent of. I think Paul's life and ministry calls us to repent of it. But there's an equally opposite error, and that is political obsession. Where we are utterly obsessed with the outcomes of elections and Supreme Court rulings and Supreme Court justices, so much so that it consumes us. The early church here is claiming that Caesar is our emperor and we will pay taxes to him and we will be good citizens in his kingdom. But there is a higher king. There is a higher throne and there is a truer and a better kingdom that has my ultimate allegiance. Now, people hear this, and I think all of us hear this, uh, and we say, well, I get that. I understand. Jesus is Lord. The kingdom of God is eternal. I totally believe that. And I think many of us agree with it only because it sounds bad if we disagree with it. But the truest test of whether you believe this that there is a higher throne, that there is a greater kingdom, that there is a more authoritative king than any ruler or principality in this world, the greatest test of whether you believe this is how you will react the day after the person that you voted for doesn't get elected. Because there are people who will act as though with each passing presidential election, Jesus is dethroned and whoever wins is set up at the right hand of God. I assure you that he is not. I assure you that he remains sovereign Lord over every single aspect of human existence within the cosmos, even when Trump or Hillary or whoever else wins the election. Jesus remains Lord regardless of the passing systems and powers of this world. And and many of us hear this and we say, yes, I affirm that absolutely. But here's the fear that I have. Even within the context of our own church, the thing that tells me I don't know if we really get this, it is the fact that I can look at the number of members of Baylife Church who have made a covenant with Baylife Church, and I can see how large that number is compared with the number of people who are willing to serve at Baylife Church. And I can look at the children's ministry that Betsy and Wendy pastor so well, and I can look at the fact that they are pulling teeth to get people to help them invest in the next generation of Christians but we can line up out the door for an election and we can line up down the interstate for protest. It is, it is unbelievable to me that the church sh- is, ought to be populated by people who recognize a greater king and a greater kingdom and a higher throne, but all these people who claim to recognize it aren't willing to participate in the kingdom or see it advance or train up the next generation of brothers and sisters in the Lord who will carry the church forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we say that Jesus is Lord. Do we live this way? The church says it. The early church grappled with this. Rome criticized them, calling them bad citizens. And the church said again and again, we will be the best citizens that you have ever had. Paul says, pray for rulers and authorities and principalities, that we would lead quiet, godly lives. Jesus says, pay your taxes. Render to Caesar what Caesar is due. The church was happy to affirm we will be the best citizens that Rome has ever seen. But Rome does not command my hope. And ultimately, Caesar is not a god and he is not my lord. He is my current ruler, but there is a higher throne and there is a greater king and there is a greater kingdom. And when those two come into conflict, the kingdom of heaven always takes precedence and priority. The earliest account that we have outside of the New Testament of a Christian martyr uh, comes from an anonymous document that recounts the death of a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was a bishop in the city of Smyrna, and he was 
captured on charges of being a Christian at 86 years old. And he was brought before the Roman magistrate and the leaders. And the Roman magistrate, in, I think, an act of mercy, felt bad about feeding an 86-year-old man to the lions. Good on you, Rome. And he says to Polycarp, listen, we'll make this all go away. Here's what I need you to do. Burn incense to Caesar. Declare that Caesar is Lord. Um, Stop saying that Jesus is, is the highest throne and king and things like that. And you can carry out the rest of however long you live in perfect peace and this will disappear. And according to the account that we have been given, Polycarp responded to the Roman leader, if you think I will swear by the lordship of Caesar, you do not know who I am. Hear me clearly. I am a Christian. And he went to his death for that profession that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Man, my prayer in this ministry is that we would be people who when asked do not first identify as Democrats or Republicans or liberals or conservatives or progressives or libertarians or any other possible point on the political spectrum, but first and foremost we would say, hear me clearly, I am a Christian. And I am looking for a better kingdom than the kingdoms of this world. And I will be a good citizen and a faithful citizen and an engaged citizen. And I will call my country to repentance and I will call for justice and pray that it would flow through the streets in abundance as the prophets prayed. But I know that no nation has my ultimate authority or heart. My heart belongs to the king of kings and to the kingdom that will not be swept into the dustbin of history, which is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we come before you uh, realizing that it is only because of Jesus that we can even approach you as we do. And Father, we ask or we thank you that in this inconceivable act of mercy uh, that you sent the Son and that Christ, you have gone willingly to be offered up on our behalf. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit now would take the things we have heard, the things that we have learned, and that they would not just be intellectual truths that is a waste of our time, but that these would be deep and vibrant realities that sink into our bones and our hearts and our souls, Lord, and that we would recognize and live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That we would always, with Paul and with Polycarp, And all of the saints who have run this race before us say, hear me clearly. I am a Christian. Father, I pray that we would be an engaged people, that we would be an evangelistic people, a loving people. And Lord, that wherever we find ourselves, Lord, that we would live always as your people. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.